and welcome to the Tandem Collective Talks podcast. Tandem Collective celebrates books, film, TV, podcasts and more with our global community. We're Jen, Jade, Lucy and Lex, members and friends of Team Tandem. You might already know us from Instagram or TikTok, but if not, it's great to meet you and welcome. We're here to chat to you about what's new in the world of books, publishing and film, interview some of your favourite authors and hear your thoughts on what you're reading and watching at the moment. You can find us at Tandem Collective UK on Instagram and also Tandem Collective Global. Hello everyone and welcome back the Tandem Collective Talks podcast. In this episode, I got to interview Erin Kelly on psychological thriller fiction and her recent move to psychological gothic fiction, an absolute dream interview for me. And I'm super excited for you guys to hear it. Before we kick off, we have got Jen and Lucy here too. And we're just going to have a quick discussion about authors that we love who genre hop. So Jen, have you got a a suggestion for this one yes so this is not too much an author that I love this is an author who I really enjoyed some of her work and then I found that she genre hopped so successfully into another genre that she completely hopped out of the genre that I love so I read um Verity by Colleen Hoover the first thing I've ever read by her loved it thought it was fantastic it's really kind of twisty thrillery amazing and then I saw all over Bookstagram that everyone has been reading and recommending Ugly Love. So I read that and it's just kind of contemporary romance fiction, which I'm sure it was incredibly well done if you love contemporary romance fiction, but it's not my go-to. So it was interesting to see how different it was to Verity. So different, so different. Whereas I feel like Erin's genre hop feels like it's aimed at a similar audience. I feel like if you love psychological thrillers, you're probably going to love psychological gothic. So really interesting that Colleen Hoover can do both, can do thrillers and can do romantic. Would you call it romantic comedy? Um, or contemporary I romance? Call it, I think it's contemporary romance. Sure, yeah. Luce, have you got any names to add to the pile for this one? I do, and I think it's a similar kind of genre hop um, to Erin Kelly in the, the way it's it's quite a subtle one. Um, it's an author that I have read a lot by. Um, she actually featured on last season of the podcast, uh, and it's Karen Swan. So all of her books, I think I've read most of her backlist, they have all been set in like a contemporary modern day setting whereas her most recent book The Last Summer um, which we're actually doing a read-along for next month is set in the 1930s in Scottish Hebrides so I feel she's testing the waters a little bit with historical fiction but um, I still loved it I think it you know will appeal to fans of both both genres so keen to see if she if she continues doing that. I love that Lucy, Lucy Jones coming in with a, an unexpected Karen Swan recommendation. Oh, any opportunity I have to recommend. <laughs> <laughs> well, from one entirely unexpected recommendation to another and another guest that we had on the last season of this podcast, Claire McIntosh. We know her as a psychological thriller writer, but a few years ago she released a book called After the End, which I think if I had to give a genre, it would be contemporary fiction or maybe domestic noir. But it is, I wouldn't say it's a thriller at all, but it reads with the pace of a thriller. 
it is a story of a couple who have to make some very challenging decisions about the future medical decisions for their their child and you read it just like you do any of her thrillers you are page after page after page and it is so twisty just like a thriller would be but it's not scary or creepy or crime-based which I loved and interestingly enough she's also got a non-fiction book coming out next year so Claire McIntosh will be hitting a, a trifecta of genre hopping which is super interesting I always think the fiction to non-fiction one is so interesting, you know, from a from a reader's perspective. That'll be um, interesting to see how that goes. I think I would always love to read more non-fiction from fiction authors that I love because it's either going to be about something that they've been through or something that they are an expert in. And I love finding out more about authors in that way. Maybe I'm just overly nosy, but I love that. Right, well, without any further ado, here is our Erin Kelly episode. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Hey there, it's Lex here with a reminder of how important it is to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast player. We would also love to hear what you think and which episodes are your favourite. Hit us up on podcast at thetandemcollective.com. Now, back to regularly scheduled programming. So. After reading the best-selling He Said, She Said, I knew I was onto an author that I wanted to read more of. So when the opportunity came up to support Hodder in their publishing of Watch Her Fall and Erin's next book coming out later this year, I jumped at the chance. Not only does Erin have at least seven psychological thrillers under her belt, she's also a journalist and loves to help emerging writers shape their books. She's been teaching creative writing for over six years and has taught Guardian Masterclasses and six-week courses for Curtis Bound Creative alongside guest lecturing at Warwick University, London City University and led workshops at dozens of literary festivals. Today I'm lucky enough to chat to Erin about a step away from what we know her to be writing, psychological crime thriller fiction, and a step towards what we're calling psychological gothic fiction. So firstly, Erin, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited to chat through this decision and your next book with you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited as well. I love, there's nothing I love more than getting under the skin of a book, so. I'm excited to dissect in a kind of an autopsy of sorts um, (laughs) on all of these genres. You're a friendly pathologist. (laughs) So we spoke a couple of weeks now uh, ago on Instagram about what makes a good psychological thriller and your resounding answer was peril. There must be peril. So what drew you to writing psychological thrillers in the first place? Well, I didn't set out and think I'm going to be a thriller writer. What I did was write the kind of books that I love to read. I mean, it really was that simple. Like a lot of, so I think I've been about... 15 years since I sat down to write my debut and it was pre-Twitter, pre-social media, there wasn't, a pre. well I mean I think I was just about on Facebook perhaps, but what there wasn't is this ease of access to publishing insider tips, it was much much more of a closed shop, voices from the bottom of the industry weren't heard and so I didn't know much really about genre, I was incredibly naive, I certainly didn't do what I see new writers doing now, which I really admire, is saying that's my market, these are the writers, this is where I want to be on the shelf in Waterstones and I'm going to go for that. 
I wrote the kind of books I was reading, which was all the kind of books. I mean, I will read everything. I'll always, I'm very voracious and a real magpie. But the books I come back to time and again have always been psychological thrillers. I mean, when I was a teenager, I once I'd got all of the Agatha Christie's out of the way, which seems to be the origin story of every crime writer you'll ever meet. You know, you're 13, you're in the library, you pick up your first marble or borrow and you can't stop until you've done them all. And then the crime writers tend to go off and find their own niche. And for me, it was psychological thrillers. So some writers who like crime fiction, which is really just a euphemism for a good old fashioned murder mystery. Some will like really hard boiled detective stories. Others will like something that's super forensic and technical. But I was always more interested in the stories about ordinary people who come across danger or crime or murder. People, you know, not coppers, not forensic psychologists, people who do not expect to be involved in crime, certainly not in violent crime, finding themselves suddenly caught up in something. So that would have been um, Ruth Rendell, especially when she was writing as Barbara Vine, which tended to be slightly more literary, often with quite a strong historical element. And also Nikki French was a huge influence. I remember, I think I was about 20 when I picked up my first Nikki French book. And crime fiction until then hadn't seemed to be about people like me. But Nikki French wrote, and still writes actually, books about young women who, because of something they witness or a choice they make or a relationship they're in or a risk they take, find themselves in pretty much mortal danger or under suspicion and need to claw their way out of a situation. And the young women in these books were always people I wanted to be friends with. They were always people I could relate to. They were always scrappy and I was always on their side and I always wanted the best for them. So I guess it was, uh, and that's actually the, the template for most psychological thrillers now. And I think because there's such a, popular genre at the moment it's easy to forget how groundbreaking Nikki French was 25 years ago because now everybody's doing it and it looks normal but there really wasn't anybody writing that kind of book that had all of the satisfying drama and risk of a traditional crime thriller with very fresh and relatable urban characters who were living the same way that, that their readers did so they would have been my big influences. And that's what I tried to do. I tried to write something with elements of Barbara Vine. So there was kind of hedonism and a big crumbling house and elements of Nikki French, which is, you know, you're young, you're out, you're single, you're going to parties and you never know what's around the corner. So really, I wasn't thinking in terms of genre at all. I was just thinking, I like these books. Why don't I try to do something along those lines? And I think that that whole concept exactly came to life in Watch Her Fall. You've got these young women who are young women living their lives, doing their things. And then that kind of edge comes in when we know that they are elite ballerinas and the obsession and the perf like striving for perfection that comes along in that world. It feels like these women are accessible and young because we know who they are. And then there's that psychological element over the top that you've mentioned. Mm. Well, I would... I mean, having just said that I love Nikki French because their heroines were relatable, and I have heard agents and editors say what you need to do is make your character relatable, then I've plunged into a book about prima ballerina, which is not, let's be honest, something most of us sure, can relate yeah. to, no matter how <laughs> grateful we are. But what we can 
what everybody understands is paranoia and the feeling of being ousted by a rival. And so in Watch Her Fall, and this is where I guess the Gothic element comes in, I was taking a situation that is familiar to mm -hmm. most people, a sense that perhaps, you, you know, you're vulnerable at work or in your relationship and you're constantly looking over your shoulder and then throw in really full on, um, I'm not ashamed to use the, the word melodrama, you know, I, the ballet lends itself to melodrama. So there are echoing corridors in deserted theatres and spotlights bouncing off blood on the stage floor. And, uh, you know, there are feathers falling out of costumes and floating ominously around. And there was so much that I could do just in terms of the pictures I could paint and the atmosphere I could create that the ballet seemed to be a really irresistible heightened place to play out what is just essentially the same human impulse and trauma that drives all my other books but it's definitely the um the furthest away from my own experience of anything I've written because despite appearances I am not in fact an elite ballerina what <laughs> I know what? oh mystique ruined how did I know it though um, so you may not be an elite prima ballerina, but you are a huge pillar of what we know to be the psychological thriller authorship and community kind of ruling the roost at the moment. What does it mean to you to be part of that author community? Oh, I love it. I love it so much, not least because I still want to read these books. I'm still, you know, people say, aren't you sick of psychological thrillers? Don't you want to you know, just go off and read uh, Georgette Heyer or something. And well, I, I, I do enjoy, you know, who doesn't love a nice Regency romance, but apart from anything else, I've made some incredible friends through my work. But I also love that I'm still discovering new writers all the time. So I get sent probably a dozen books a week in the hope that, you know, I might read them and maybe give a quote for the cover or share a picture of the cover on Instagram and I always do whatever I can to support other authors because I will never forget the pure buzz of those early quotes coming in that's when it really starts to feel real I mean I had titans like Sarah Paretsky and Stephen King quoting for my debut and I, d I don't actually know if it makes that much of a difference in terms of reaching readers but I do know what it means for an author to have that support and I know that it means a lot to booksellers and to reviewers which I suppose all is part of the journey to reaching a reader so yeah it's a community I love to be part of and I like the new, new books that I read so for example um, I think Lucy Clark and Gillian McAllister are doing really good things in this genre at the moment it's a really joyful place to be and also the crime community in general is a very egalitarian place to be we're used to being dismissed by people who don't read crime fiction as kind of shocky pot boilers and if you have ever read a book by Jane Casey or Tana French or Sarah Hillary or Will Dean you will know that crime fiction can be as beautiful and as powerful as anything that you'll find on a I'm doing finger quotes here which is great audio literary prize shortlist so we kind of there's a bit of an honor among thieves you know we're used to being dismissed but we know the truth which is that crime fiction is the most exciting genre you can get and also I think it's crime in general and psychological thrillers to really hold a mirror up to society in a way that when literary fiction does it tends to do quite self-consciously but with crime fiction you are always getting a snapshot of the times you're living in because 
you can't write a thriller without dealing with the technology and the law and what's happening in society, which is why so many of us absolutely lost our minds when lockdown happened and just thought, how are we going to set thrillers in these circumstances where nobody can meet anybody? And then, of course, Catherine Ryan Howard pulled it out of the bag with 56 Days, which is a really fantastic lockdown thriller. Unfortunately, we're now out of the other side and wondering how much of the lockdown experience and how much of the pandemic to bring into our work. But it's it's a really wonderfully supportive community. And I think what makes it that is that none of us have ever stopped being readers. We can mm -hmm. still get excited. Oh, the bar is high now, I have to say, and I think that's true for most published authors. I would say so before I was published, I would stick with a book if I wasn't loving it. Um, and now if I don't love a book, I won't get past the first two or three chapters. I mean, sometimes mm -hmm. it's within a paragraph. I can tell this voice isn't for me. So I do, I guess I do demand a lot. Uh, you know, I want something that's interesting to read at sentence level as well as a fancy plot. But it's it's just a really great and fun community. Crime writers mm -hmm. in general have the best sense of humour because we have to, because look, look what we're writing about all day. We're writing about, you know, kind of... <laughs> coercion and murder and blackmail and so we have to have a gallows humour that gets us through it. Oh I completely agree and I think actually a kind of sub-genre that I've really enjoyed seeing all of my favourite crime authors kind of one-up each other on recently is that locked room you know just mm -hmm. like you said it comes from the finishing school for readers of crime fiction of Agatha Christie mm -hmm. and then now we've got, okay, well, now we're on an island in Ireland, and now we're on a plane, and now we're in an avalanche. So it's been really fun to kind of watch that snowball over the past couple of years. Mm, I've never done it. I've never, never done, done it. it. And would you ever, do you think? I probably wouldn't sit down for the hell of it and say, let's see if I can do a lot room, because my books always come to me. It's always about, oh, it's about a a ballerina or it's about somebody who watches eclipses or it's about a trial it, it will always mm -hmm. um or it's about the place is usually the inspiration that's never say never but it's not something I've had a go at and I would love to if only for the technical challenge but it would have to be a, a setting that hadn't been done before I guess mm. and make it worth my while and I there's probably none left <laughs> that's it there are no more rooms no more rooms. but we have got some incredible books out of it I agree mm -hmm. okay so now let's talk about your next book so at the moment we know it's going to be set within the wonderfully named new genre of psychological gothic what does this genre look like for you and what will you be keeping from your previous style of writing like you mentioned you kind of dipped your toes into it in watch her fall with those very eerie scenes, particularly the feather floating. And what will Erin Kelly superfans love to see mm -hmm. in this next? Well, I think I've been creeping towards the Gothic for a while now, actually. And that is, if anything, it's been a byproduct of me not wanting to write the same book every single time, because they say write what you know, but what I know is. I'm a suburban mother of two and I can't write, you know, that's going to get, that, that, that did feed into The Poison Tree actually and even my third book, The Burning Air to a certain extent, but I can't always be writing about that 
world because the books will get samey and I more importantly I will get bored and if I'm bored I'm going to start churning out formulaic stuff and the readers are going to leave so I think it was a byproduct of always wanting to explore a different world I'm a I didn't used to love P.D. James's Adam Dalgleish detective novels, just because I never bought into him as a detective that used to recite Shakespeare in the middle of a murder scene uh, and write, write his own poetry. But what I did love was that she would always take you into a closed world, whether it was a, a publishing house or a rowing club or a hospital. She would always take you into a world. And William Boyd does it really well, too, to find out something that you didn't know about before. So the mystery is central, but also there's a world, it's a, a passion or a way people live that isn't quite mainstream, that hasn't been done to death. And I think it began with, I mean, I think Stone Mothers, which is my, that's three books ago. And the, um, just to make things confusing, it's also published as We Know You Know. That was set in an abandoned psychiatric hospital over a 60 year period, I think. And that was when I really decided to sort of, you know, break out the thunderclap sound effects and the creaky hinges and all of that I really went for it in that book and I just loved being able to let go and really ramp up the tension and give people you know art and atmosphere and full-on creepiness within because I'm because with every book I get more and more sure of my skill set I feel that there's there are other things and I get more assured as a writer at sentence level, I think I can be more over the top in other ways. So I've actually pared back my writing style quite a lot. It's got much less flowery and more concise and I think more powerful as the books have gone on, which then frees me up, you know, kind of purple prose and an overblown plot is a bit much. But when the prose is a bit more disciplined, I think I can get away with really leaning into it. And there's just so much you can do. I mean, Wuthering Heights is a classic for a reason. Great Expectations is a classic for a reason. There is something about the claustrophobia and the drama of gothic fiction that has a really timeless appeal, I think. And the more I, the more I think about the conventions of the genre, so doppelgangers and people coming back from the dead, the more fun I'm having with it. And Watch Her Fall as well was physically as was the, you know, I'm, I'm very much drawn to physically very unique and creepy things. And it's been fun to get those on the page as well, as opposed to just, you know, car parked in a driveway and in a close in some undefined suburbia, which can give rise to incredible settings. But if you look at, um, so Lucy Foley, for example, I think her books are very setting led and the Paris apartment is quite gothic in that there's lots of you know, lots of spooky goings on in, in adjacent apartments. And yeah, I think readers really do respond to knowing where they're going to be. And they like to be taken to a place, especially now, actually, when travel has been restricted and we're still finding our way out again. I mentioned Lucy Clark earlier. Her books are, well, certainly all the, all the books of hers that I've read are always set by the sea. And that's one of the things I look forward to. And the sea can be, you know, the sea can lend itself to Gothic if you get yourself up to Whitby or somewhere. But it's when you read one of her books, you always know that you're going to be taken to a certain place. It's not going to be a thriller based on what you can see out of your window. And that's mm -hmm. what I'm more and more drawn to. And I'm so excited to read The Skeleton Key. I've seen the front cover 
which is obvious sets it quite apart from the previous books that you've written but just as you said sets you very in that world of creaky doors and hinges and wind blowing at the windows it does immediately give you that that feel but you mentioned how actually setting is so important and how it you might run up to Whitby by the sea if you were writing that scene has anything about your routine or your practice of writing changed for this new genre and new discipline no I don't think so I wish I had a routine what I'm trying to do is get better at plotting in advance and I'm trying not to Mm -hmm. let myself get carried away because I've made the same mistake in every single book which is to get so into the scene that I'm writing that I end up with five chapters that I polish and polish and polish and then realize they throw the whole story off and I've got to delete them and start again and the skeleton key was really no exception what was different with this book was that I didn't really need to go anywhere because it's about a a treasure hunt that was launched in England 50 years ago and it was a little gold skeleton buried in seven different locations all over England and the clues were hidden in a picture book and the story opens on the 50th anniversary of the treasure hunt with only one little tiny golden bone missing which is the skeleton's pelvis and at the party to reveal its location they dig up what they think is the bone and it's actually a real human pelvis so Mm -hmm. that's the premise of the skeleton key what I did to research it was look at the armchair treasure hunter movement which is essentially like I said picture books with clues in there are loads of things online there's geocaching websites and most of it is done with clues that you don't have to go you know it's not about going out with your metal detector and digging it's about looking at a picture or looking at some text and solving a riddle so it was much more of a sofa-based reading experience than most of my other books have been there was no real I mean a lot of it set around Hampstead Heath and there was you know I walked around there a lot but I do that anyway so I wouldn't I don't know if I would necessarily class that as research so yeah it was more more about looking at art because art's a huge part of the book and it was about reading about artists process and stuff that actually sometimes the research was quite dry but it's my job to make it exciting on the page Mm -hmm. which I hope I've done (laughs) so actually it doesn't sound like much has changed for you which is probably quite nice and I think that's potentially because psychological thrillers and psychological gothic and like the other elements that you've mentioned in we know that you know and watch her fall it is a nice transition for you it's not like you've suddenly decided actually I'm going to go away and write romantic comedies that's my, my my new step no it's definitely been a very organic thing I mean the books are getting slightly longer every time which is interesting to me when I look at my old books now I look at the ratio of incident to writing there is a lot of writing around things happening so definitely I'm getting more ambitious in terms of my plotting as I go on and there are occasionally historical elements I mean with Watcher 4 for example there was loads of it was an incredibly research heavy book and the challenge then actually because I think anything that's historical lends itself to the gothic because you are dealing with the potential for abandonment and loss and things that are uncanny because they're not the way we live now 
so there was lots of you know researching about the history of the ballet from the French court to the Russian Bolshoi and then the problem becomes how how do you write a book with all this really cool stuff you know without plopping in every single fact you've got so that the reader disengages with what's on the page but no it's definitely been um just a gradual turning towards things that interest me and being inspired by a different being inspired by doing really deep dives in the research of the books so that is what's changing every book needs more research and throws up more possibilities more settings more twists more more weird characters to write about yeah so I'm uh, actually the book that I'm writing now because the skeleton key is finished I think we sent the pages off just last week is very light on research actually it's a return to it's super gothic but I've decided to set it all in and around London and people have by and large normal jobs and my challenge then is to make it as heightened and exciting as possible within those parameters so that's a different kind of challenge which I'm really enjoying. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned your challenges around creating new characters and making them weird and wonderful in all the best ways if we can talk about it a little bit more I'd love to venture more into the details of A Skeleton Key. So the new book is out on September 1st, and in this book, as you've mentioned, readers meet Frank Churcher, a family with a deadly legacy whose threat is undimmed two generations later. Can you tell us a little bit about creating Frank Churcher and this family? Yeah, I created Frank Churcher backwards, actually, because I didn't, I knew that um, he had to be a gentleman of a certain age because, so he is, I think, he's in his mid-70s in the book. Uh, because I knew I wanted to be dealing with a treasure hunt that reached back a long time. I knew I wanted the mysteries, the secrets to be really, you know, generations old rather than just a decade or so. But I didn't think that, well, I know my readers and I I didn't think that a book opening and led by a 75-year-old man would hook them in the same way that a female narrator would. So actually it's the story of Frank's daughter, Nell, and she is she's kind of early 40s she's looking after someone else's teenage kid and she's not living quite off ridden on the run but she definitely doesn't want she's got her reasons to want her privacy and to want that kept and the 50th anniversary brings up a lot of bad memories for her because the picture book in question and the skeleton in question belong to the cover girl from the picture book, which is called The Golden Bones. And it's a folk story from a made up folk song. And the story is about Eleanor, a fictional girl who Nell is named after. And because the book was such a phenomenon, the real human Eleanor uh, attracts stalkers and obsessives and people who do not want the best for her. And people who can't tell the difference between this human teenage girl, lots of the story is set in the 90s, this human young woman and what they see on the page and what they're trying to dig up and attempts are made on her life. So it's really about Nell not wanting to engage with this 50th anniversary thing and how a lot of old threats surface along with a bone. And it was really fun. It was really fun to write. Nell lives on a narrow boat. I wanted to make her somebody quite itinerant who doesn't like to stay in one place for too long and has she's quite a lonely person, doesn't set down roots because she's worried about making herself vulnerable. She never knows if anybody 
really wants to be with her for who she is or because it's another connection to the treasure hunts. So I got, I wrote some of the, the book actually staying on a narrowboat in Little Venice, which was really good fun and taught me that I am not cut out for narrowboat living. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I enjoy a more of a, I'm more of a flushing toilets kind of girl. But yeah, it was it was a really fun way to. Uh, having said that, most of the research was done on books. Actually, that was the one treat I allowed myself. That was my trip to stay on a book for a few days and write and write with the uh, decent swans swimming past out of the window on the Regent's Canal, which was really fun. Oh, that sounds beautiful. Um, so with Nell, you've and your previous books, you've talked about how there is always something in your characters that your audience can relate to. I think with Nell, it sounds like there's that privacy element, that want to be left alone, which I'm sure at times in our lives we can all resonate with, where we just want our private lives to be private. Do you think that's one of the most resonant for us average Joe readers in this book? Yeah, I mean, I think in particular, Nell, there's there's one dilemma that we can all relate to, or most of us can relate to, is certainly if you work in the media in any form, there's the the need to, for work reasons, to have a public self and to project online. And Nell often thinks that her, she thinks about what her career would have been if she'd had the freedom and the confidence to, you know, have thousands of followers on Instagram to show off the art that she makes. And I think most of us at some stage have thought, oh, I would just love to turn the internet off completely, but we know that it's part of our job not necessarily just in media careers, you know, there's lots of us would like to walk away from the screen, but it's just not possible. So there's that dilemma, but it's it's more, um, I think it's more the family dynamics that people are going to relate mm-hmm. to. It's not a spoiler to say that Nell was not well-parented, that she had very <laughs> bohemian, narcissistic parents who, who I, I really want to say on record, are nothing like my own, but they are the, you know, <laughs> I've got friends with the kind, you know, that kind of parents who think it's, you know they have the philosophy well you know if I offer you your first taste of marijuana then you're doing it under my roof and it's all cool and groovy and safe and actually that goes one of two ways either tips into neglect or it's just so excruciating the children just can't stand their parents so Nell has a brother she's very close to and that I think lots of people will envy Nell got a lot of attention when they were young because she was the one with the stalker she was the one that had to be chaperoned everywhere she went and her brother who is one of the good guys, but there's very subtle things about how he sometimes finds himself being jealous of the attention his sister gets. And so when it comes to the 50th anniversary, he wants to be involved in that just as much as she doesn't. And I think some people will be able to relate to the fact that when your parents are a nightmare, siblings are incredibly important because they were the ones who were there and nobody else understands you. So, yeah, I think in terms of families and the way, the many, many ways we can completely wreck our children, I think, and be wrecked. And Nell, for all her good intentions, isn't a perfect parent to her mm-hmm. foster child either. So, yeah, I think that's where that's where people are really going to recognise themselves. So, yeah, but privacy is um, privacy and the the desire to not have an online self. I think. A lot of us can can relate to that. Gosh, okay, I'm so ready to read this. I'm going to be emailing for a PDF as soon as I possibly can. To wrap up, my final question. At the very beginning of our interview today, I quoted your own words back to you and said that your word for psychological thriller 
was peril. If you had to come up with a word for psychological gothic that feels in keeping um, with the skeleton key, what would that word be? Ooh. Claustrophobia? Mm -hmm. um, or paranoia? Mm. I don't know if I can do it in one word. It, it's a sense of doors slamming. Mm. Uncanny, maybe? Mm -hmm. There's a hint of the uncanny and... I mean, I'm no, uh, my books are very far from magic realism. Maybe uncanny. One word is never enough. One word is never enough. Otherwise, I wouldn't need to write <laughs> uh, 100,000 of them with every book. But so I'll, I'll try and give you a sentence instead, which is that there's just always something out of the corner of your eye that you might not understand as well as might not like. So it's just a slightly otherworldly vibe that is layered onto the very mortal material peril that my narrators find themselves in or create. Amazing. Amazing. Perfect. So that brings us to the end of our podcast recording today. Erin, thank you so much for recording with us today and for giving us your time. I have loved your psychological thriller writing and I am so stoked uh, to check out The Skeleton Key. The new book comes out on September 1st, ready to usher you into a slightly more spooky season. Readers, mm. keep your eyes peeled for ways that you can get involved over on the Tandem Collective Instagram and ensure that you are signed up to our newsletter so that you don't miss any opportunities to get your hands on a copy of the book. Erin, once again, thank you so much for being here and for chatting with me. It's been the absolute dream. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, guys, so that was our interview with Erin Kelly. What did you think? I loved it. I thought it was really interesting. And I particularly really enjoyed the way she described the differences between psychological thrillers and kind of gothic psychological, because I hadn't really thought about it before. Um, I loved her use of the word claustrophobic, because I think that sums up the gothic so well. Um, and I probably hadn't even considered that, even though it's a genre I read all the time. Yeah, when she said claustrophobia, I was like, oh. Of course, like that's, you kind of hit the nail on the head with that genre, I think. It's not a genre that I read a lot of, but as soon as she said it, I was like, yeah, that's the word. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was a brilliant interview. Very eloquent as well in, in you know, when, when she's talking. I thought it was really interesting as well. You know how the age old saying for writers, write what you know. She starts by saying she didn't necessarily know that that, that crime or psychological thriller was the genre that she wanted to break into, but she wanted to write books that she would enjoy reading. And after the episode, I was really kind of, I don't know, pondering, oh, are there any authors that do all, do all authors do that? And do they write something that they would want to read themselves? Because a lot of authors still have that dissatisfaction with whatever they end up producing, even though it's brilliant work. And it just really was something that I was left wondering, you know, are there any authors who perhaps write something that is a genre they wouldn't necessarily read themselves? I thought it was uh, some food for thought. Uh, yeah, I liked that. I thought it was super interesting. And actually it made me think when she was talking about authors now are kind of expected to know where your book is going to sit on the shelf, who it's going to sit next to, which publishers would like it. I think about that as well. Like, I think if I was going to write a book, it would probably be published by, I mean, I say probably be published, <laughs> like I'm, you know, talking myself up here. 
but it would be a book in the genres published by Michael Joseph or Transworld or Little Brown or Hodder or some of these kind of more criney spaces on the internet and in publishing. But okay, so Erin gave us her word of psychological thriller to be peril. And she gave our psychological gothic word to be claustrophobia. I now challenge you to give me your single words for the genre. Don't you don't do any better on gothic. I think claustrophobia is absolutely it. For psychological thriller, I would probably say twisty. Like, I don't feel like I'm reading a psychological thriller unless I'm completely surprised by what has just happened. Yeah, I completely agree. For me, the more twists, the better. And actually, mm-hmm. I was recently reading a book that I thought was a good book. And then it got to the very end. And within maybe the, the, the end two pages, it was suddenly a barrage of twists that made it for me an amazing book. So, yeah, I completely agree, Jen. Twists, massive tick from me. Absolutely. Like when I was, um, I read my first Claire Macintosh and I was just messaging you throughout the entire experience, like, oh my goodness, the twist. (laughs) My favourite kind of text messages to receive ever. My words to associate with psychological thriller would be tense or tension. Like, and it's, it's not only how that's created in the writing, but it's, it's also how I feel. It's like kind of, you're, you're addicted to that feeling of being like on the edge of your seat and, kind of similar with film as well not the way that you know if you have a a horror or something where it's very obvious or gory in your face like I I find the more psychological horror stuff more impactful because of the tension that's created so yeah that would that would be the word for me that sums it up again I completely agree because I think my word would be panic that kind of like oh you I mean you can't see me but I'm like hyperventilating (laughs) And I feel like that is a, a tension feeling for sure. Okay, great. Last question. And then we will wrap up, guys. Who are your titans of the genre? So be it psychological thriller or psychological gothic, who are you recommending for us right now? Mine would be Christine Mangan. I absolutely loved her psychological thriller, Palace of the Drowned. And again, you know, thinking about the words tension and panic, that book just completely gripped me from start to finish. I haven't read a huge amount of thrillers, but it's something that I'd love to delve into further. Um, it's not my usual go-to genre, but yeah, would love to read more. And I thought she was fantastic. So I read both of them all the time. So I'm going to do a recommendation for psychological gothic. And I'm going to go Laura Purcell because she's just, she's the best at it. From everything to do with kind of her story to her settings, it's just incredible she really kind of captures that there's a horror to it but it's also just that real kind of creepy intensity she's just perfect that's it awesome thank you so much guys and for those of you who are listening who are interested in reading these genres or in the concept of reading outside of your genre we have a podcast episode it might have come already or it might be after this one but it's where all three of us will be challenging each other to read a particular title way outside of our comfort zones. So go ahead and have a look for that one. If you are interested in The Skeleton Key by Erin Kelly, keep an eye out on the Tandem Collective Instagram and on our newsletter, because there will be multiple opportunities to get your hands on a book and to join us for a read-along at the end of summer, maybe September, 
kind of ushering you into that slightly more spooky season as the nights get a little bit darker. But for now, let us know what you thought of the interview. Let us know what your favorite psychological thriller and psychological gothic books are. And we'll see you in the future. Sending love. Bye. Bye. As always, thank you so much for joining us today. Please do take a minute to rate, review and subscribe and we'll see you next week. As always, we're open to your feedback. So please do hit us up at Tandem Collective UK on Instagram or using the hashtag Tandem Collective Talks. If there's anyone, content creator-wise, industry superstars or your favourite author that you think we should feature in the podcast, then let us know. Bye! Bye! See you later!